Welcome back to the Agile Coffee Podcast, episode 28. Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee. All right. Good morning and welcome again to another Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 28. And I'm excited because this, for the first time, um, is being recorded in the San Diego area. We're in Carlsbad, to be specific. And I'd just like to give a little plug to the place where we're at. We had a fantastic breakfast outside at um, Chandler's, and now we're in the library room of the Cape Ray Hotel. And this is, again, in Carlsbad, California. Today I've got a number of special guests uh, for the first time, uh, three of Three of the guests are joining me today. So going around the room from my left, I've got Garrett Barunda. Welcome, Garrett. Thanks, Vic. Good to be here. Garrett can be reached on LinkedIn, and, and everyone's name and, and contact will be in the show notes, so you can feel free to go to agilecoffee.com slash episode 28 for that. Jason Kearney's with us. Hey, glad to be here. Jason is uh, on Twitter, at Jason Kearney. It is J-A-S-O-N-K-E-R-N-E-Y. Jason. Dale's joining me again. Glad to be here. At the Digital Dale on Twitter. And Zach Boniker. Morning, everyone. Hi. Great to be here. Zach doesn't use Twitter yet, but you can bug him there anyway, at Zach Boniker. Z-A-C-H-B-O-N-A-K-E-R. It's funny when I spell your name. B-O-N-A-C-C-I is my name, yeah, so right. it's uh, quite close. Um, I'm Vic Bonacci, and we're happy that you're joining us for this Agile Coffee. So uh, the guys here are familiar with the Lean Coffee rules. We've already written out some cards. We're going to go ahead and read out what we've got in front of us, and then we'll uh, take some time to vote on it. Who'd like to start? I can. Go on, Dale. Take it out. Uh First topic, how to coordinate work between teams when one team's stories affect or depend on another's. Uh, Topic number two, Scrum Gathering Phoenix. Just got back from there, so I can give a report. And third topic, reducing waterfalls within sprints. All right, this is Zach. I'm going to jump into, I've got three cards as well. So let's start with, the idea of the product owner and why everyone seems to associate that as something that's specific to Agile, right? So is product owner, a a single person who drives a team, the only real Agile product management model that we can use? Uh, Recently, topic number two, recently, more at the beginning of the year, um, Eric Meyer gave a talk and he said a profound statement that Agile is a cancer that we have to remove from the industry. Uh, let's explore that. Why? Why is there so much ignorance around Agile and, and what's contributing to it? How do we make it go away? And then lastly, let's talk about the Agile organization. Right? I'm really interested in this. We've got an Agile software manifesto. Right? It's pretty clear what our values and principles are. But when we translate that to a larger um, organization, even if they don't build software, what sort of pillars or tenets do they operate from? What is an Agile organization? This is Garrett. I have two topics that I wanted to discuss today. Uh, the first topic is giving voice to a team using Agile tools. So I've noticed in many situations that there are people who have things to say, who have things that they can contribute. But for some one reason or another, whether it's organizational, whether it's personality, whether it's comfort level, they don't participate. And I have used before and would like to hear about your experiences in using Agile tools to get people to speak up and to participate more fully. The second topic I have is, you know, with whom do Agile principles take root in organizations? Uh, Sometimes people gravitate towards it. They use it. They're active. They do great. And other times they repel it. They, They just can't make the transition or it's very difficult for them. And I'd like to talk about the type of personalities and type of situations where Agile principles really can take root. So I've got two cards. Uh, The first one is intentional practice. As I'm primarily a dev, I found the act of practicing development, you know, working on non-production code just so I can be better at being a developer has helped me a lot. But as I'm starting to look at other parts of the organizational structure and Agile, I'm finding that there's a lack of references to intentional practice, and I was curious if anyone knows of any uh, ways in which you know you can practice you know other skills. Uh, then my second card is the power of success. 
I work in a very unusual environment. You know, um, we do mob programming all day, every day, and we've been very successful. And because of that, now there's some interesting transformations happening within my company. Mm. And so, you know, there's this really cool phenomenon I've been seeing that has to deal with the power of success and how it in itself can be transform transformational. Excellent. So um, that's a number of really compelling topics. We're going to take some time here to vote. Uh, let's give ourselves maybe four votes apiece. We'll just dot vote on these and uh, put them in an order. All right, so we've got all of our cards uh, voted on, prioritized, and uh, we've got a great stack today. I'm really excited about this. The first card, giving voice to to a team using agile tools. Garrett, this is your card, right? It is my card. Why don't you start us off? So one of the things that I've been dedicated to over the course of my career, both as a manager and as a consultant, is really engaging my teams and the individuals in my teams to help drive the success of an organization or or, or that team. Um, And one of the most important things really is to bring out everything that those team members have to offer. So when I came up with this topic, you know, last year at Scrum Day San Diego, when you, Vic, and John Jorgensen gave the talk on Agile Coffee, it really inspired me. Um, I became an Agile Coffee evangelist. Um, It's part of the reason that I work with Zach Boniker now uh, is because we met in Agile Coffee and now we ended up working together. So as I've been out there evangelizing Agile Coffee and getting people to use it to you know really drive conversations and to get work in order and to make them successful, um, I've found that it is an excellent tool as well as many other Agile tools to help give voice. Uh, and the example that I want to use is you know locally there at USD there are a number of leadership degrees that you can get. And in one of those programs, um, I was happy to talk to a participant who was saying that they were stuck in an effort to try to bring some legislation together for the state of California. And the reason they weren't able to move forward is because there was just too many ideas and feelings were getting hurt. And so I suggested that they use an Agile Coffee format saying, hey, if you get it out there, and allow people to have their 20-second spiel to say why this is important, and then they all have a chance to vote, then no one's feelings get hurt. You all have an equal opportunity to have a say. Well, I practiced the Agile Coffee format um, with them and then left it to them, and sure enough, in one one-hour meeting, they were able to prioritize you know, what type of legislation they wanted to work on. So that's just one example of where you know an Agile tool really can give voice and to a team, and I was wondering, you know, what experiences do you guys have in using Agile tools to give voice? So, when you wrote the card, that was the first thing that I thought of too. Was was Lean Coffee um, is excellent for this because if you have introverted people or or those maybe you have people who are more outspoken than others and tend to suck up all the oxygen in the room, um, putting it on cards is a great way to get everyone to contribute. Then you do some affinity mapping. And you find that a lot of people share the same topic or idea or concern. Um, so everything that you just said, I'm just plus one. <laughs> um, I've used it, though, for road mapping and for identifying like uh, technical debt uh, areas inside of the organization. And it probably sounds like it had the same effect of, of the scenario that you described with the, you know, the, the legislature or whoever was using it, where you get people to see that we're all going, a lot of us are going to be talking about the same issues, and these are the most important issues to talk about. So, yeah, plus one. Jason. So, <clears throat> my wife is running a uh, uh, volunteer event with anywhere between 2,300 to 2,500 people showing up. It's her first time running the event. The people in the group you know, who do different parts of it, you know, they have a long history. And none of them, you know, they all have their own points of view, viewpoints of how things are going. So when she stepped up to do this, she was just getting bombarded with all kinds of stuff from everyone. It's a lot of it contradictory, a lot of it, you know, and she needed a way to organize it. And after ex- introducing her to Lean Coffees, she actually did a Lean Coffee as her first meeting, her first mm-hmm. official meeting. You know, let's get everything on the table, let's talk about what we're doing. And afterwards, she was able to get a clear vision of what needed to happen next. And so that was kind of cool because everyone got to vote, got to talk. Everyone got to hear everyone else's point of view that she'd been getting through emails. And everyone was able to come to a kind of a uh, concise uh, understanding of what needed to be done. 
some people, you know, could be intimidated, don't feel safe, you know, in team settings and just conversing. Um, on the, the 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 point that story matters, sometimes it's fun to see what conversations take place when we tell stories. Drop some story cubes around a problem, you know, and just see what kind of weird adventures that people come up with in their minds that might, you know, get them into a place of, of, of comfort. Um, there's also a lot of power just in, I don't know if this is an agile tool, but sometimes in just framing our conversations with teams and people outside of the first person, you know, so that it really, it's nobody in the room or it doesn't have to be right. So you create this safety, like for example, in a retrospective, if you did a safety check-in and you found that people weren't really comfortable, it was a new team. You ask the question, okay, well, let's not continue. What, what might be causing someone to feel, you know, that they aren't safe. So even if somebody voted, that I'm not safe. They can very clearly say, hey, all these things are going on, and they, it doesn't have to be about that person, right? I don't know. Um, not really an agile tool, but sometimes that's an important thing to, to, to consider when we're working with people. How would you frame that? How would you introduce something, uh, the last uh, example that you're highlighting? Like, how do you, you said not put it in first person? Yeah, so, yeah, so sometimes you'll see, okay, well, you know, what's our strategy? Hey, Garrett, you know, what is our strategy going to be? Or Garrett and Jason, what were the things that you guys were working on to, and brainstorm now, putting you on the spot? Um, sometimes you say, so if we were a person that wanted to achieve, you know, some sort of, you know, a different direction, what sort of things might that, that, that person do? So it doesn't have to be any one person's idea, you know, because sometimes people are afraid to bring up an idea that they'll, so, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe they're afraid it's a bad idea. Now it came out of my mouth. Instead, hey, I can say it with, with confidence. It isn't necessarily my idea. This might just be something that some person would think. Yeah, I, I, when you mentioned that, I was thinking like the uh, the exercise for product owners where they they design a, a box, you know, the the product box. So it's kind of impersonalizing that. If you're talking about like um, giving voice to a team where they're not designing a project or a story or something, but they're talking about an issue. Um, interesting. I think the story cubes are are a great way. I haven't used the story cubes yet, but um, it sounds like a fantastic way to um, start telling stories and getting issues on the table. Um, improvisation, too, is another one I've heard people talking about and getting excited about a lot lately. Um, so, yeah, fascinating stuff. So I think one of the other things that is common in our business is the feeling of development teams feeling put upon. Like, they wish they had more of a voice in the whole process, but they feel like they're being dictated to. Uh, and I think by enforcing some of the Agile principles... Um, whether it be Scrum or any of the other types of tools that you can use, you can reinforce the idea to people that you don't necessarily have to accept what has been given to you, that this is a collaboration, that it's important for product owners to come up with the ideas, the what, but it, the owners of the how is the development team. And you know it's not exactly an Agile tool, but it's part of the greater Agile framework. To reinforce that the, 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 that principle is important and the collaboration is important, because once the development team feels empowered, they feel like they have a voice. They work much better. They're dedicated to it. You know, they have some skin in the game. And I think for the success of an organization, that's critical. Check out the show notes, and we'll put uh, we'll post these ideas and more there on agilecoffee.com/episode28. Our next topic. Uh, sounds like uh, it's very compelling as well. Uh, Zach, I'm going to let you introduce. Yeah, so <clears throat> the the next topic is <clears throat> driven from um, a computer scientist named Eric Meyer, who at the beginning of the year was at a conference and gave a talk um, that was, you know, the his, his idea of the hacker way of building code that in this conversation, he basically said, you know, this whole Agile thing, it's garbage. And his quote was, Agile is cancer, and we need to remove it from the industry. Now, I think he was intentionally being over the top to elicit that exact response of, what's he talking about? He basically goes on to say that a lot of what's happened in the industry is, is really not what was intended with Agile. And then you look at Dave Thomas in his blog post from last year saying Agile is dead, long live agility, where he said that you know Agile really has been – it's deformed into something that is really just a, an arena for consultants and vendors to hawk their products. So then it kind of makes sense, the context that Eric Meyer is saying. So my question is kind of what I want to talk about is how do you feel about it when you hear that? And if Agile is a cancer, if it has turned that direction, why? What's, what's triggering? What's really the root cause and how can we change it? 
So I speak a lot about you know, when people talk to me, ask me about Agile, about getting away from practices and moving more into philosophy. But I will say that you know, at my last job that I had before the, before the one I'm at now, I was doing a very small Agile transformation within the company. And I finally got to the point where all the developers understood Agile with a small A. But communicating that out to the rest of the company and trying to make the rest of the company understand, I really had to communicate it with Agile as a big A, meaning you know, practices and frameworks and things like this. And there, so there is a point to it that it gives us a common language of communication. I do worry that when people buy the practices without the philosophy, you get something that is significantly different. But being able to talk about it in a way that is uniform and meaningful, I don't know if you can do that without looking at talking about it from the point of practices. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, the there's I'm trying to think who the I think it was Jim Hyman who said that um, you know these these grand theories that that produce no actions are just vapor, right? But then. Um, you know, specific actions in the absence of guiding principles are often you know misapplied and, and abused. Right? So I think that's a lot of what we we see. I, 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 I kind of theorize that you know when when we've we've really gotten some movement in the agile community and, and our organizations start shifting from process centric ways of working to people centric ways of working. The quote I like to use is, "Well, now we've introduced the threat of people," and this is where you know we've seen it abused to where you, you hear these quotes about agile as a cancer, right? Because you have people who perhaps were ignorant that were afraid to admit so, and then you know add misinformation to that. So we've got hiring managers that were unsuccessful at implementing agile that are now writing the job descriptions. You know, for you know, for for people to solve the problem that, that they don't even really understand what their problem is, and you have recruiters that read some misinformed job descriptions that form opinions of who the right people are, and it you know just compounds on one another, right? So there was an amazing um, article from Tobias Meyer, uh, you know, and I think he's he's reposted. I don't think it was a current one, but it was talking about how you would hire um, an agile consultant and how you would seek agile help. And his his point is first surrender, mm. surrender to your problem, mm. then expose it state your problem and then ask for help and invite people to talk with you and then go from there don't just make the assumption that i can prescribe who i need to solve the problem and i think that's an i think that's an amazing piece of advice and i think our leaders should be maybe maybe a little selfless to say i don't know how to solve this problem i was going to ask dale because uh we were talking about the keynote from the scrum gathering and you said mike Cohn his one of his messages there was don't be afraid to ask for help yeah, and don't be afraid to, because we uh, agile is a, a semi-scientific kind of a practice. We we formulate theories, we put those theories into action, we test those theories, and then we come up with results. And as with we've seen with just about every other field of science, things that we thought were uh, immutable over the years uh, change, and it. Agile is our the practices that we have in Agile are are no different. Sometimes things that, that people promote as being it's like this is it's like we've you know we've we've tested this this works this uh, um, or and people or, or or worse people just write about something that's a theory without even putting it into practice um, and then the the evidence either immediately or over the years we say well we thought that that was correct but that's over the years uh, that that theory has been proven to to either not be incorrect or there's something that's a little better. Um, so that's that was his angle on it. Um, I think this is maybe a little different. Um, I, I didn't read that original thing that this stemmed from, but uh, if, the, if the accusation is that uh, if this is kind of one of those anti-framework um, arguments that that, uh, that all frameworks are bad. Um, I you know I, I couldn't agree with that um, because I, I I've seen how useful they are, um, especially in 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 nascent uh, agile transformations and, and even sometimes companies that, that think that they've been doing it for years, um, they've been misapplying the frameworks. And it's like, well, no, if you use the framework the way it was intended to be used, it would actually work pretty darn well. But you're not using it that way, uh, and it's also helpful for us to. Re- uh, remind ourselves that while we sit around these tables and talk about 
uh, agile with a capital A and, and agility in the, in the greater sense of the word, uh, that there is a, you know, go to any PMI meeting um, and you'll understand that there's a huge, huge portion of the biz, of the industry out there that is still using uh, old-fashioned kind of linear approaches to software development um, and that uh, we may still be in the minority here even talking about Agile. But. Hmm. Yeah, Myers, <clears throat> you know, Myers' kind of point was, you know, we, we have all these stupid stand-up meetings and, you know, add that over the course of two weeks and that's just time lost writing code. And, I mean, so admittedly, this is, you know, it's a, it's a very technical man, right, who, who's really truly an engineer and cares most about that. And his point, I think, was that there's just been too much selling around the framework. And he ends up proposing this 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 hacker way of doing work that, that if you read it, it and, and I, <laughs> I'm not sure if he meant to do it, if it was kind of that inside jab of, like, are, are you picking up what I'm putting down? But it's basically the Agile Manifesto restated in a lot of ways just without the or it, it just doesn't read like here here's the scrum framework you know it's more about focus on your, your your software do small bits experiment constantly learn and grow from it you know that's kind of be more like a hacker in writing code don't just be a robot and go to your stand up meetings and then write a user story and now accept your task breakdown and you know things so they said it's a little I think it's a little it's meant to be a little intentionally over the top um, but you know it is a good message, right? That that there there, if we're talking about agile software development, a lot of the there has been a loss of focus on the craftsmanship side to it, and I think that's important. That's why we've seen the the movement towards the software. What is it? The the craftsmanship manifesto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do I do worry, you know, that when I go out and with the you go out and meet people with the certification mills that are out there and the, the, the ease of, I guess, getting into and understanding a simple framework like Scrum I means suddenly we have a lot of people out there that really think they're experts and they kind of contribute to this problem. We have a, uh, where, where there's managers and there's people that are in charge that are, are bringing in the wrong people to solve the problem that they don't understand. And it, it compounds our problem, I think, in, in trying to help businesses be successful and kind of change the world of work, right? And I really think it's up to us to drive this conversation because I empathize with the managers and the executives in these companies. They want to do better, but at the same time, they want a quick fix. And we need to be engaging them on a regular basis and letting them know there, there are no quick fixes. And we really have to have these conversations to push back on the prescriptive nature of a framework. There is a reason the framework is there, because it has been proven that there's some amount of success that can happen relative to the framework. But in the end, it's not the framework that's driving the success. It's the principles. Yeah. And I think conversations like this is what will allow us to overcome you know, statements like Agile is a cancer. So, you know, I think about an article that Alistair Coburn wrote. Uh, I can't remember the terms. It was uh, three stages of learning that he kind of got from martial arts. And, you know, the first stage is you take something and you learn it by rote. So, Chuhari. Thank you. Thank you. That was what it was. And a lot of times what I see is that people think they're smart enough to skip the first stage. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of things, this isn't just Agile. This is, like, a lot of different studies and things. You know, when when I go talk to people about learning something new, they're like, oh, well, I can understand that. I'm, I'm smart enough to intuit that. And... I think that first stage of learning is actually very important. You know, that's a great point. Yeah, and I've worked for organizations where some of the developers thought things like you want to bring back. Where, where I said, it's like you know, we're we're skipping some some of these ceremonies or events, um, and, and and some of these procedures that, that I've seen work very successfully in, in other uh, environments that I've worked in, and the the attitude was it's like oh we've left that behind we're too good for that um and and, and at first i accepted that i'm on like, maybe these guys are um and then if we got uh, more into it i they were horrible at delivering um working software uh at the, at the uh, end of an iteration um so it's like yeah they they, they needed to go back and do some of these things but all right yeah great stuff i mean um Ron Jeffrey, uh, on his blog and, and on Twitter, he's on Twitter pretty actively too. He was in a, a bit of a war. I think um, someone had said Scrum was a big failure and, and why are people bothering? And he went back and forth. So um, I'll post that in the notes too as well. 
Um, but yeah, great. I, I agree. This is where the conversation needs to happen, and then we need to take this and, and spread the conversation within our organizations too, and and walk the walk and, and show them that it's it's the values. When in doubt, return to the values and 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 start there. And uh, whether you call it agile or you call it something else, um, really means very little to me as long as we're talking about the same values that underline it. Um, cool. What do you have to say? Uh, use the hashtag Tell Agile Coffee and join the conversation with us. <laughs> Zach, looks like you have something to say. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's keep going. Well, you kind of left bread trail. I see now I feel like we're moving beyond our, our card, but it was interesting what you said, right? Because if we need to go out and we need to talk to um, you know, our, our leaders and our executives, our vice presidents, our directors, and really get them to understand and, and, and to support these people-centric ways of working – well, but what if they don't believe in that? And we have to start saying, well, is it right for us to challenge people's beliefs? You know, mm-hmm. And is it right for us to try to convince them to believe otherwise? I, I spoke with a director who, you know, when we were working on, this is an S&P 400 company, um, and he says, look, you're, you're, you're trying to change things that they think about what you're doing. We've invested so much over the years into our huge, massive phase-gated SDLC that was just miserable. But um, we've invested so much in it, and we've got tools to streamline this, and our processes are fine. Agile is about change, changing to customer needs, not about us changing how we deliver them. I'm just thinking to myself, that's insane. But he Mm -hmm. believes in it, right? So if you go around the world... And you find people who, you know, they're, they're into one religion. You say, you know, gosh, I've, I've just I've seen otherwise. I, I, I've, I've seen the world and I think you, this is really, this is a different religion you should follow. You're never going to, that person's never going to believe it. So how do we convince these people if we're talking about matters of belief? So first of all, I want to agree, you're not going to change anyone's core belief. But in <laughs> Agile 2014, uh, one of the best talks I got to see was a lightning talk called I Killed Agile. And basically, this guy was a coach, and he was doing an Agile transformation, and it was failing. It was failing in so many different ways, and he was pulling his hair out, and he just got frustrated one day and walked into the, you know, called called a a board meeting of everybody involved, all the higher managers and stuff, and he looked, he went around the room in the meeting and pulled down all the posters talking about Agile. And then he put up white paper and said, look, I don't care what we use. Let's talk about what our value is. What is it we're actually going to do? And then what he did is he trained them in Agile. But he stripped all the labels off, stripped, you know, didn't use any of the terms, talked specifically to the company's value systems and, what, and specifically to the monetary value that could be brought to the company and approached it that way. And he said within a year he, had, he was able to transform the company. Yeah. So, Jason, that's perfect. You set me up great here because I think the conversation does come back to values. And I want to push back on some of Zach's comments about people and belief. I understand what you're saying um, relative to trying to change someone's religion. At the same time, if you get Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama in the same room and they start talking about values, I bet you they come up with the same types of values for all of humanity. And I think going back to empathizing with managers and executives, if you engage them with an open mind and try to understand where they're coming from, where their values are, that you come to some common values. And then you go in and you strip out, again, all the nomenclature around it and talk about those values and focus on those values, that once you do that, you can start moving an organization towards more agile principles and getting them to be more successful again. And I think that's really the key to it. I think sometimes in trying to protect what we believe as agilists, sometimes we forget that we need to engage people more, that we need to be empathetic, that we need to try to understand where they're coming from. I, I agree, Garrett. And you know, I, I thank you, by the way, for disagreeing with me. I, I like that. Um, what do you think then about a statement that agile isn't for everyone and it's okay to say, no, you don't get to be agile? Oh, there's two different statements there, I think. Agile isn't for everyone. I can maybe, I could see exploring here, but you don't get to be agile. That's like, wow, <laughs> you're taking it away from me? Now I want it more. What is this agile you speak of? And maybe that's a good strategy. 
Maybe when you're talking to some uh, water, some really waterfall-oriented manager, you, you just throw up your hands and go, you're not ready for Agile. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got this, uh, this Agile machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the, the reason I bring it up, though, is that while I agree that speaking to values is an easy way to begin transformation, that's how we have to interact with yeah. our leaders, for sure. I do believe, though, it's possible that we, to value them as individuals, we may have to let them be where they are going to be because we fundamentally may believe different things about the way that the business should learn, should should work, run, grow. I mean, it's true. There are people that are more focused around you know creating a structure of promotion and a bottom line dollar, and then there are people who are more, who who believe that their organization should be more customer focused and serve and grow and evolve and support their people. There's there's a lot of different lines of of you know leadership thinking. And there are times I've run into people where I've thought to myself, I feel like I'm being disrespectful to you to try to change your frame of mind because that's not who you are and that's not where you want to be. But maybe I'm just making assumptions too. So the last thing I'd like to add to that is uh, I can can agree with the sentiment with one caveat, and that is if that means the person leaving the company, then the company should help help them leave. You know, not kick them out, but actually, you know, help them find a better place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes back to being human centric. You do small things like that move worlds. You, you know, you do something small for someone, they remember it, and they come back to it mentally, and they'll pay it forward. So, coming back to Zach's comment, whether it's okay to let people—how'd you phrase it, Zach? Not be agile, or it's not for them. So, it's not for you. Don't get to have the agile. Well, so I want to agree a hundred percent with you. Um, you know, in Jim Collins' seminal work, "Good to Great," um, he talks about the fact that the adherence to a principle or to a value is one of the most critical things in being successful. But what he found in his research is that it doesn't necessarily matter what that principle or value is, as long as the organization as a whole is committed to a single type of principle and drives towards it. That's the most that is the way that you are able to achieve success most readily. So I think, yes, that some organizations may not be ready. They may see the world in a different light, and you have to let them be who they're going to be. Great. Let's move on to our next card. We have uh, Dale wrote, how to coordinate work between teams when one team's stories affect or depend on another's. Dale, why don't you start us off with that? Yeah, I work in an environment where there are multiple scrum teams. And while this isn't, while all of the teams are not necessarily or, or not frequently all working toward the same goal or modifying the same parts of the system, um, they're making a lot of independent changes. Occasionally, uh, some of the team's stories affect other stories that are going on in other teams. Uh, so without. What are, what, are, what are some simple practices without going full-on safe or something like that? Um, what are some simple practices to coordinate work amongst scrum teams where they have work that affects each other, that affects other teams? Well, I mean, my, my first question um, would be, tell, we may need to break out the, the categories of dependencies too because I feel like you can have different approaches I mean if we've got component teams right is this so I've got a for example a UI team and then a database team right I mean is that the type of dependencies that you're you know experiencing where the the actual feature itself then gets split to two teams because well I gotta have one team build the UI side and the other team doing the database teams and so those that work comes together to produce one deliverable no no the the, the teams are are largely cross functional so we are talking about teams that 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 can pretty much um, by themselves produce a piece of functionality but something that they're doing affects something that's in another part of the system that's being worked on by another team um, and what are some what, if any, are, are some simple practices? Integrate frequently. Yeah, I would, talk to each other. I would agree with that. The most success I've ever had with this was in a small company where we had three pairs. Each pair was constituted as their own team working on three different products. The products all kind of interrelated. They all kind of touched each other. And so even though they didn't directly affect one another, every now and again, a release would break something else. Right? And so... 
what we ended up doing was we did prayer rotation. Every single day, we made sure that one person from one of the teams moved to another team. Wow. Uh, and then this gave us, this stopped all the breakages, and it also gave us an un- unintended side effect that anybody could be sick, and the projects kept going. Because everybody understood the architecture of the whole system versus any single piece. I think that's a great way to go. Um, And I think that over time, that kind of insulates you from interruptions in being able to produce software. Uh, I think more to Dale's question, I want to talk about remedial conversations. Sometimes you just need to get people in a room and have a conversation. And perhaps lean coffee would be the great tool to leverage. Currently, I'm running into a similar type of issue in my engagement because there was a high, there's high-priority work that comes down that one team, Team A, typically handles, but they, are, they don't have enough capacity. So they've reached out to Team B. Well, Team B, knowing that this is a high priority for the company, more than happy to take on the work. But where we're running into problems is that in this Scrum uh, methodology where the product owners can both agree and even to a certain extent the developers can agree – QA is really getting left out of it because QA for Team B says, I don't know anything about this functionality. How am I supposed to test it? QA from Team A says, I don't have the bandwidth. I'm already working on the most important stuff for our team. I can't test it either. Well, great. So we finished the development, the highest priority development, yet it's still not going to get released because no one will test it. In this case, it literally is, let's get all the POs, let's get all the developers and all the QA in a room and have a discussion about what's most important and how we're going to handle it. And in this case, it really is a matter of forcing the product owners to make some tough decisions. Hey, we have two sets of functionality. Typically, product owner from TB, this is in your area. It doesn't really impact you know, how successful you are. But for the company, this is a major issue. You know, And get agreement and alignment behind that so that we can agree that, yes, this whatever feature it is or whatever functionality it is, is in fact the most important and then align the resources behind that effort. Okay. And to, to head things off at the pass, now I'll ask the leading question. Uh, to help prevent those things from happening in the future, are there regular types of meetings or communications that you can set up between teams, like in a multi-tiered scrum structure where the where the people, where the developers say, it's like, are you working on any stories that might affect another team, um, or is anybody else's work affecting yours? That sort of a thing. First recommendation is, is if the work isn't visible, let's get it visible. Somehow, some way. Right? Um, this is where you see you know, teams and, and organizations using release walls or, you know, other tools. I mean, I mean we've got to make the work visible to be able to enable those conversations so we can see where they're at. Software is, is really good at being invisible because it's invisible. Um, <laughs> so that'll help facilitate that conversation. Um, I, uh, did you have some doubt? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, and their management is aware of some of these things because ma- uh, the uh, the upper level management uh, over the developers is uh, is in on more of these planning meetings. They know what these stories are. They know they know how the systems are going to affect each other. Um, uh, but I feel like the developers would be better off talking to each other about some of the stuff and and, and it may be able to identify the problems quicker than even the managers. But. Yeah, and this is one of the tricky parts that to kind of follow up on on once it's visible, then you can set up some sort of structure for, you know, meetings. I what you've got the scrum the scrum style or there's the cocktail party where people come together. The point is you want people talking. Here's here's a risk that we run when we have these type of dependencies though, is that we'll get people, coaches, managers, whatever. We'll we'll create meetings. We'll create meetings for these things to happen. And all that we've done though is we've solved the problem for the team that we want them to start speaking together more freely and now we're reinforcing the idea that they need mechanisms to be able to talk with one another, right? It's a little bit of a catch-22. So you can start with that. We want to get visible. We want to have meetings where we can enable conversations and people should be doing that and checking in. Then we have to be careful about how we introduce it because we don't want the teams to then feel like they're dependent on scrum masters, managers, whatever, to create the mechanisms for them to talk. So... May I ask, what are you using to track your stories? Are you using physical cards, a digital system? Version 1. 
Okay. I'm not familiar with the version one uh, system. So if you've used that, I, it's, yeah. it's it's a, it's pretty much the same as any other major ALM tool out there. So. Okay, um, because one of the things that you might be able to do, and I, you know, I'm thinking physical cards, but I'm sure there's a digital equivalent, is you know to put colored stickies on it for teams. Like this is the team your team is working on something, right? And the other teams can go, oh wait, that might affect us. Just put a sticky on it, you know, or color it, or tag it, or some some way. And then just have, ask the teams to be aware of what everyone else is working on. Just simply having the awareness of what is being developed by the other teams. And it doesn't have to be, you know, rigid. It could be, you know, check at lunch or, you know, check around lunchtime, check when you come in, check before you leave, right. kind of thing. And if you see something that might hit your team, tag it. And then the other team knows to contact you. That's good, good reinforcement, too, for the idea that if it's not already, make it visible, preferably outside the tool. If you can, just, uh, again, maybe you have remote people, so it's not possible, but visibility goes a really long way in enabling conversations. Yep. Visibility and limiting your work in progress are the two golden rules, right, to live by. Um, anything else on this topic, or you guys want to move the on? The only other thing I'd mention really quickly is the communication and prioritization. So across teams, there really has to be an understanding of what the most important thing is. Time and time again in my career, what I've run into is conflicts that aren't able to be resolved because both parties believe they're doing the right thing. They're driving towards the correct priority when, in fact, the conversation about what the top priority is hasn't been resolved. Once you align on priorities, then it's easy for people who are in the teams to make the tactical trade-offs. So I think in addition to visibility, I think communicating priorities is extraordinarily important. Right. Great topic. Again, um, let us know how you coordinate work between your teams. Use the hashtag TellAgileCoffee and become part of our conversation. Let's move on to our final topic of episode 28, and that is power of success. Jason, start us off with that. Certainly. So I work in an unusual environment. You know, I work with Hunter Mob, and we've been doing some amazing things. And, you know, To begin with, it's five programmers one computer, all working on the same thing. Uh, but they've gained a lot of trust from the company because they've had a lot of success. Uh, they've been doing it three years and currently no bugs in production. You know, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. The you can stop and have a round of applause. Right? <laughs> yeah. And because of that, wow. things are changing now and we're getting we're becoming more empowered. Uh, we currently, with... Woody leaving, we currently don't have a manager. There is no plan, from what I understand, to give us a manager. We've completely changed our uh, area that we work again and the physical environment environment because we're hiring people and we're going to create a second mom. Um, We, you know, and they're willing to do that for us. You know, before before that, even when I even a year ago when I came into the company. The physical environment had restraints, constraints on it based off of company policy. And so they weren't willing to be as flexible with it. Now they've kind of found ways to mod- not break the policy, but you know, kind of modify it a little bit, make it work the way we want it. They're willing to work with us to find how to make it work so that we can change our environment to fit our needs more. Um, you know, we've, we're starting to have influence outside of our group. You know, there's uh, talk about getting the IT group actually moving to a full DevOps environment, and they, you know, they're, they're coming to us asking us for advice. Nice. And so, you know, we made all kinds of these little tiny successes throughout the way, and it's an amazing uh, motivator for change. And so, I want to know if anyone else had similar stories, or you know, if we could figure out ways to to take the power of success to for change and make. Ch- changes within other environments that aren't yet as successful. It's a little similar to when you see or hear, you know, I mean, I've been a part of it and I've heard other, you know, people who have tried for transformations where they'll take a team or a small segment of the company and just kind of put them off on an island and let them do their thing. They're hugely successful. Everyone, you know, sees it and that, wow, that's really great. And it starts to catch on. So it's something a little similar to that. I mean, you've been running a big grand experiment, but you've been having the, the support to do so. And people like the results. Um, how do you feel I'm just curious about the power of success how do you feel about the power of success now saying now this works so well replicate it bring on another mob team well 
that's what we're doing. I know. We how, how, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like the power of success has, has pushed you in that direction that that's what you should do, that just create another mob team, continue to grow? Is that? Do you think that's the right direction that, that Hunter should go in? And, um, it's another experiment. It's something that we are, you know, they're going to be, we're still going to have a limited whip. We're going to be working very closely together. The mob is literally going to, the second mob that we're planning is going to literally set less than five, less than 10 feet away from the previous mob with no walls between. <laughs> Are you guys going to like split the current mob and like seed the new mob with members of the existing mob, or is it a fresh start? We're right. thinking about doing full rotations, okay. so that everybody is one team, just two mobs. Okay. So, Jason, I just want to kind of follow up with the idea of commitment to excellence and staying very focused on what you do well, and how that does, in fact, um, drive success and drive. Uh, your ability to implement different processes. So when I was at Symantec, I'd come from Apple. And this was before Apple hit it big. And when I joined, we were not a very popular group. We didn't get very many resources. We certainly didn't get a lot of attention across the company. Um, We just kind of did what we did. Well, coming from Apple, uh, I brought a lot into Symantec relative to quality assurance. That was my first job. So I took over the quality assurance aspects of it. And I transformed that group. Uh, Previously, we were using pieces of paper to track our test cases. Um, There was no concept of having a QA engineer, someone who actually understood the code and could poke holes in it. Um, There was no real governance over the people working in the team. Everyone kind of did what they wanted to do. Um, So as I started introducing some process um, and we started getting better, uh, I tried to empower the team. I tried to get them riled up behind the idea, hey, we're going to be the best quality assurance organization in the company. PC, mobile, doesn't matter. We're going to be the best. And I got them to start believing in that and start start gaining momentum. Um, fast forward two years later, the rest of the consumer organization adopted all of our processes because we were doing so well. Um, the very first um, post-mortem that I went to, I think there's 212 priority one and two bugs that we'd released to production, and I was aghast when I saw that. A year later, when we released again, this is back in the waterfall days, um, I think we had something like 11 priority two bugs, no priority one ones. Um, so again, the fact that we were so successful in the Macintosh group, which then spread to the PC side of the house, which then spread to the mobile, and all of a sudden we were doing things the right way. And I think the lesson to be learned here is if you guys, if we, you know, as a community continue to focus in, on doing things, quote unquote, the right way, that it will grow, that we will have success, um, that agile principles and values will take, continue to take hold and really make a difference. So what's greater, <clears throat> the power of success or the power of failure? Or are they, at the root cause, the same thing? You know, Zach, I think people gravitate, gravitate towards success more than learning from failure. It's so much harder so... to learn from failure. <sighs> but why? But failure is so <laughs> interesting, and you learn it. <laughs> Jason? <laughs> you have to have safety for failure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? And you don't always get that, uh, particularly if you don't have success to back it up. Uh, my, I mean... The first thing I noticed when I went to work work for uh, Hunter was the absolute safety for failure. We did a one-week spike. Okay, think about that. All five of us working on one thing for one week, having no idea if there was going to be any kind of return on investment on this. <laughs> you know? Uh, luckily, it didn't fail. We actually – there was a huge return on investment. But it could have. I mean, there were several points in there where we looked to each other and said, should we just dump this? Should we give up? And we're like, no, let's just go another hour. And we would have a minor success. And we're like, okay, we're actually progressing. You know, let's, let's keep it. We gave ourselves a time box of one week. Let's, let's push forward towards that. You know, but in order to have that room for failure, you have to be able to show some sort of success, I think. You have to, you know, particularly if the company isn't bought in, isn't, you know, and that's where that's where I started seeing that's why I brought the power of success because one of the things I've been looking at right now is that you know can we can we buy enough social capital by giving small successes to actually invoke true change? I don't know that that's anything that's new to agile. I, I mean, you can uh, any any group that sees another group having success with something um, will emulate that behavior. 
Uh, so yeah, you, it 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 does naturally have a have an ability uh, to extend out. Yeah, I didn't think I don't think it's new, but it's something I don't hear talked and, about enough. And, and some organizations, some organizations are like you know, I, I uh, I'm forgetting who, who who quoted this first, but uh, 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 maybe it was Deming. Um, Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and that's and this that gravitational pull of a company's culture sometimes that even if a even if a division is having success with something, um, if other divisions don't like that way of doing it or distrustful of it, even if it's successful, there can be resistance to changing to adapt that. But uh, but yeah, I think there's a but there is a pretty strong gravitational success uh, pull toward success, and and most management if they see something. That's successful in one department or one division of a company or one one re, one sales region. Um, they'll they'll want to extend that out. I'll just kind of close it or, or kind of wrap up my my thought on that idea with failure. Though is that I agree. Yeah, people are going to gravitate towards success. <laughs> success feels so much better than failure. But putting it to the place where well, you need to have some success before it's safe to fail puts a lot of pressure on people to try to take chance or to try, try to take experiments and risks and take, uh, you know, put their neck out on on the, the the line to try something that they believe in. So, yeah, there has to, there absolutely has to be uh, tolerance and understanding for for failure uh, because unless you get incredibly lucky, there are going to be failures on that road to success. Yeah. yeah, I don't know who coined the idea first, but one of the things I learned from Scott Dunn when I was starting, you know, my agile journey was the idea of bringing an expert. So sometimes to get something started, maybe you can leverage someone else's success. Say, hey, we've been successful here, there, here, and hey, this guy's awesome. Um, trust him, and then the organization will get on board because they're running into an expert who they can't refute, right? Um, so I, I think that's when you know, come back and back to the failure conversation. Yeah, sometimes you are going to fail, but to get the momentum, to get the organization behind any effort, success helps in a lot of ways. And I would like to say that I would wish that it wasn't necessary to have lots of successes for it to be safe to fail, but there's just a lot of places where that's not the case. It's always safe to fail here. <laughs> Use the hashtag Tell Agile Coffee. And brag about your best successes and failures. Uh, that about wraps up this episode, but I wanted to once again thank Jason, Garrett, Zach, and Dale for joining me here at the beautiful Cape Ray Hotel in Carlsbad, California. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. Um, check the show notes. The show notes are at agilecoffee.com slash episode 28, and we'll talk to you next time. Agile Coffee.